Open our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 3, and tonight we'll look beginning at verse number 7. We considered this morning uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, and tonight we're dealing with that letter that was written to the church of Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, we'll begin at verse 7. Keep your Bible open and a pen and pencil handy, if you will. Let's pray together before we read the scripture. Heavenly Father, we ask for your divine guidance. We don't want to mishandle thy word. We want to be faithful to you. We want to say what needs to be said to our precious people tonight. We believe, Lord, the folks that are here have come, desirous to hear a word from thee for their own lives. And I ask that you'll help us, that we shall be sensitive to the, to the Spirit of God and that, Lord, you will accomplish in this service what you desire to accomplish. Open our eyes, give us new vision as we've never had before as a church, as individuals, as Christians. Help us to look out on the fields and to reach out, Lord, to those who need you. Now fill me with thy spirit as we speak thy word and fill the folks with thy spirit as they listen and make application of thy truth to their lives. And all that you do, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Now, Revelation 3, at verse number 7, we begin reading at that verse, and the scripture says these words. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make of them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation or trial, which shall come upon all the world, to try them which dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." If you'd like just a, a little simple outline of these verses that might help you in your consideration even after the, uh, the service is over and maybe during the week, uh, let me just give this to you very quickly. In verse number seven, we have the place designated, just simply the place, verse number seven. Also, you have in verse number seven, the person that is our Lord Jesus and the character of his person. He is holy. He is true. He has the key of David. And also you'll find in verse seven, the provision that our Lord makes saying he has set before them an open door. He opens the door. No man can shut, shuts the door that no man can open. 
At verse 8, jot out beside verse 8, the praise. Here is what our Lord praises the church of Philadelphia for. They have had little strength. They have little strength. And yet he said, you have not denied my name. And then verse number nine, our Lord is very plain and I just simply designate verse nine as the plainness of our Lord. He is very forthright. He minces no words as he calls those who say they're Jews or they're children of God and they lie and he calls them, calls it as it is, they are of the synagogue of Satan. At verse 10 through 12, you'll find the promises, the promises that our Lord gives to these in Philadelphia, and I believe to those of us as well. The promises, and this letter, by the way, is replete with promise upon top of promise that the Lord has spoken to us. And then at verse number 13, you have the plea, the same plea that is evident in all of the letters to every one of the seven churches. Now then, uh, let me just have you to think with me on, a, on, on two simple matters primarily tonight as we look at this church of Philadelphia. It is the church often referred to as the church of the open door. There's a very famous church in Los Angeles known as the church of the open door. Dr. R.A. Torrey preached in that church. Uh, old Dr. J. Vernon McGee uh, pastored that church for a long while. And that it is known as the church of the open door. And certainly that is an apt name for the church of Philadelphia. Uh, the name Philadelphia, I'm sure you're aware of already, uh, simply means brotherly love. Brotherly love comes from the word philos, which speaks of that kind of affection and love that we have for others, and the word adelphos, which is translated brother. So together you have brotherly love. That is the church of Philadelphia. And what a wonderful, wonderful uh, name and expression of the atmosphere in the church of Philadelphia. Uh, we could talk to you for the entire message tonight on the effects of a church wherein men and women as children of God love each other. Uh, it is unlimited what a church can do as we turn our love first toward God and then one toward the other. So much of the advancement of the cause of Christ is crippled because there is a lack of that love in our hearts one for the other. You'll find that the church of Philadelphia, as is evidence here, was a weak church. The Bible says uh, you have little strength. They were weak, but hey, they were wonderful. Weak but wonderful as our Lord speaks to them. And you'll note this, that not the slightest hint of rebuke is found from our Lord as he speaks to this church. Every other church in the, of these seven, you'll find that Lord has, uh, as it were, a bone to pick with them. He has a word of condemnation. He has a word uh, of displeasure. But of this church, he simply has no word of rebuke or any word, uh, as far as that goes, of correction from error. So I think we need to understand the, quality, the characteristics of this church in order that we might endeavor to become a church that our Lord can praise and certainly can commend. It was a church, I think we could say, a revival church. 
revival fires burned in the church of Philadelphia. And not only that, but it was as a result of being a revival church, and I'm not talking about a meeting. We have a lot of revival meetings that are not really revivals, but this church revived kind of people. And uh, uh, as a result, they became a missionary-minded church. They were a mission church. And you'll find that in the Philadelphian church age, you'll find that the greatest impact for missions, the greatest advancement, revival gave birth to the concern for the needs of men and women around the world. And I'll tell you one of the earmarks of real revival in your heart of mind is the fact that we have a concern glowing and growing constantly in our heart for others. Not just for their physical well-being, but for the spiritual welfare of men and women. Some of you perhaps remember the old time revivals when people get so burdened for unsaved loved ones. They love them. I've seen people shed tears, brother, uh, that you could, uh, uh, if you caught it in a towel, you'd have to wring them out. They were burdened. And that creates a spirit and an attitude and an atmosphere of missions. And I don't mean just simply to the foreign field. Uh, you and I are to be missionaries, to carry the message of the gospel of Christ to those that we know, those with whom we work, in our neighborhood, in our community, to our loved ones. Indeed, this was a church of revival. It was a church that had a world vision. And that is evident from history as to this particular period of the church that just followed the period known as the time of the Great Reformation. Doctrinal issues were again emphasized in the, in the uh, uh, era of the church of Sardis, the period of the Reformation in church history. Doctrines were solidified. They were established. Uh, people got a grip on them. As a result of that doctrinal truth being reestablished, revival fires began to break out, and then it pushed out into missionary activity and gave to these a world vision. Now, the Lord offers simply blessing instead of blame when he speaks of this church. He has only good to say of them. There is no threat of fearful vengeance found in any of the words our Lord spoke to the church of Philadelphia, but only the thrill of fresh vision that seemed to capture the mind and the hearts of these people. Indeed, the proverb is right when it says, where there is no vision the people perish. That can be applied twofold. You and I will perish and dry up as a church if we fail to have vision to reach out and bring the lost to Christ. But also without our having that vision, our unsaved loved ones are gonna perish. They'll go without witness. They'll go without anybody to pray for them, to witness to them, to encourage them to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a church then that had a call a call from God, and these in Philadelphia heard that call. Let me just mention two things about the call, and that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. They had a call to behold. And secondly, they had a call to behave. That's simple. A call to behold and a call to behave. Now at verse 7 in your Bible, down through verse 11, you'll find the call to behold. That is, the word behold means to stop, look, and listen. It's something of a, a, a literary traffic light. Uh, stop, look, and listen. It means as well to consider thoroughly. To not only consider, but to contemplate. To understand what is about to be said. 
And you'll find that often in the words of the, of the scripture, uh, after the word behold, there follows a very important and very significant message. So here in this very call to behold at verse 7 down through verse 11, you'll find first of all there, there, there is a vision of the king. Verse number 7. And notice how the Lord introduces this in verse number 7. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. Now, the letter opens up with a reminder of that earlier vision John records in chapter 1 of the vision of our blessed Lord. And here is that particular trait, our character trait of God or of the Lord Jesus that you find brought over and it fits in this very particular message. It's the background of it all. So the vision of the king is very evident here. That vision of, of our Lord had to do with his attributes. It had to do with his resources and it had to do indeed with his prerogatives. Now, three things. Let me ask you to note this. It had to do, first of all, as far as the vision, a vision concerning his attributes. Now, not all of the attributes of God are found in this very mention of verse 7. But two of them in particular. He mentions the attribute of holiness and the attribute of truthfulness. Two things that are very important for us to understand about our Lord. He is holy. If we're to ever do any kind of work that is of eternal lasting value as a church or children of God, we must recognize the holiness of God. And so the Lord reveals himself as the holy one, the pure one, and thus setting before man the standard to which indeed we, that God would have us to uh, go toward and one day will be ours. The Lord has said, be holy as I am holy. Though we're not in that fullest sense of the word, of practical holiness, yet one day we will be, for the scripture said when we see him, we shall be like him. And so is that true to holiness? Not only that, but that of truth. He is, he is dependable, trustworthy. And so with that in mind of the attributes of God, the Lord Jesus introduces himself to the church of Philadelphia. Not only that, but here is a fresh vision of his resources. Notice what he says again at verse number seven. He that is true, but notice, he that hath the key of David. That is, the word key is symbolic of authority, of power. He has the authority and our resource is in him. Whatever power is needed to get the job done, he's saying, I'll provide that. I am your strength. I'm your power. I'm your authority for getting the job done. And then there are the prerogatives of our Lord that's very evidently in mind when the Lord says, He that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. In other words, it is God's prerogative to open as he chooses and to close as he chooses. You know what that tells us, speaks of? It speaks of the sovereignty of God. He, he doesn't have to ask. He doesn't have to get our approval. He opens and he closes doors for his people. Now, a vision such as this, 
A vision of the king in his holiness, his purity, his resources, his sovereignty always precedes the vision of the continents. A vision of the king precedes the vision of the continents, that is, of the world. Uh, Before the church ever looked out and saw the world as God would have them see it, they had to see him as he was. I'm reminded of the word in Isaiah 6. Let me ask you to turn there just a moment. Isaiah chapter 6. And you'll remember this very familiar passage of Isaiah concerning Isaiah's vision. And the scripture reveals here in chapter 6, if I can find it right quick. All right, chapter 6. And he said, you remember this, in the year that King Uzziah died, here's the vision, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now look down to verse 5. As a result of that, Isaiah sees his own unworthiness, his own uncleanness, his sinfulness, and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. At verse 6 and 7, you'll find that the Lord cleanses his servant. Now you see, a vision of the Lord came first. Isaiah recognizes his own sinfulness and his uncleanness and his unfitness for service for the Lord. And now the Lord cleanses him and notice what's said in verse eight. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, here it is, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. In other words, Here the vision of the Lord brought about a vision of those who needed the message of God carried to. It is that first vision of the Lord and then the missionary heart is born out of that vision of the blessed Lord himself. We're all familiar, I'm sure, in in the church with the name William Carey, one of the great missionaries of the past. William Carey was a cobbler, a shoe mender. In his shop, you would find, those of us there, you would find, of course, the tools of his trade, perhaps a book or two. You'd find a Bible. You'd find a Dutch grammar. And you'd find as well, perhaps a book on, uh, on uh, Captain, uh, Captain Cook's Voyages, a very, a, a very favorite book, I understand, of William Carey. But the thing that seemed to catch the gaze and the attention of everybody who went into that old cobbler's shop was a map that is pinned up on the wall of the world made out of leather and paper. It was a, it was a map that uh, showed the then known world. And that was the very thing that really William Carey seemed to have his eye on. It seemed to absorb him. For he saw in that map hanging on that wall, he saw the darkened continents of the world who had heard no preaching of the gospel, no proclamation of the Savior, and it so grew in his heart that he became burdened for the souls of men and women on other continents. In the month of May, the 31st of May, in the year 1792, William Carey spoke to a group of preachers and delegates in Northampton, England. And there he spoke on this very famous text from Isaiah 54, verse 2 and 3, where the verse says simply, Lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. 
It became uh, the very watchword, and men and women were so stirred in that meeting that from that meeting, the, the Nottinghamshire Baptist Association formed a missionary society. And as a result, William Carey became the first missionary from that group of Christian people in the country of England. As a result, he went over to the country of India, sold himself out to God to spread the gospel in the country of India. He there, while he is even doing his mission work, started a factory. He also was responsible for producing uh, a, a, a brilliant translation of the Bible in the language of the people of India. He founded a very excellent college where young men and women could be trained in the word of God. Not only that, but he hired out of his own pocket other missionaries to come and spread the gospel of Christ. All of that came about in the life of William Carey because, first of all, he had had a vision of the Lord and he had heard the call of God in his heart and he gave himself to the business of, of going as God's representative and God's servant on foreign field. Now, that's exactly what happened here in the church of Philadelphia. Undoubtedly, that's what happened. They first get this vision of the holiness of our Lord in all of his dazzling purity and cleanliness. They saw also in that vision and got a message of how the word of our God is dependable, so dependable, so true, that a fellow could stake his very life on it. William Carey did. Staked his life on it. Hundreds of missionaries, thousands of Christians around the world staked their very life on the promises that God has given, knowing indeed that he is true. And then they saw in that vision something of the resources that, that indeed is available to those who will follow our Lord. He has the key of David. Perhaps that is a reference to an incident back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 22 and verse 22, where Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, was given uh, from the scripture the key to the house of David, which simply meant he had the key to all the treasures of the king. In other words, what I believe God is saying through that is simply this. If I order something, I'll pay for it. You don't have to worry about God's resources running out. And if God's called you, if God's dealing with your heart about some special area of service, Know in your heart that that's what God wants you to do and then trust him. I guarantee you he'll provide for you in ways that you could never dream possible he'll provide for you. I thank God for that resource we have in our blessed Lord. And then they're given a vision of his sovereignty. That is, he opens doors, he closes doors. Indeed, he is sovereign in all of his ways. He is the sovereign Lord. Now in verse number seven and eight, I want you to notice what is revealed here. He reveals in verse seven and eight that all saints are under his control. All the children of God are under his control. Now three times you'll find that he uses the word behold. In other words, he's asking them to behold some three times in this very passage of the scripture. Consider it, contemplate it. Look at verse eight. He said, I know thy works. Now he says, behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. No man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength 
and has kept my word and has not denied my name. Now notice what the Lord saw. He saw their weakness. But he saw something that was more valuable and arresting than their weakness. He saw their willingness. Though weak, yet these showed a willing heart to do what God asked, to follow him faithfully, and willingness is the thing indeed in the heart of any child of God that the Lord delights in. Because of this very fact, he opens the doors for those willing, faithful believers in Philadelphia. He opens the door and none can shut the door that God opens for them. Here's a thing I've found in my life. Oftentimes in my life, I have wanted the Lord to open the door without ever first letting God deal with my willingness to do exactly what he wants me to do and to be faithful in that. In other words, sometimes we pray, Lord, open, open a door of service for me. What we may be saying is this, Lord, you open the door and then I'll come up to it and check it out and maybe I'll go through and maybe I won't. Oh no, the Lord said, that's not it. First of all, there must be willingness in your heart to do whatever God says, to walk through whatever door God opens, a willingness in the heart. In other words, that willingness is the result of the heart becoming submissive to God, the call of God, to the will of God. And until the Lord breaks down our stubborn will, we are not usable in the hands of God. It's like a fellow trains a horse or a girl. Uh, like training a horse. Uh, that horse must first have his will broken. Now, after that will is broken, then you can train him to either pull a wagon or you can uh, uh, get him uh, a sa uh, saddled, put a saddle on him, or maybe he'll, uh, whatever. I don't know what a horse does. I don't even know what side to get on or where to milk him. But anyway, I don't know so much about horses, but I do know one thing. I'll guarantee you, you have to break them. There has come a willingness within. And that's what God wants to do in our life. And the reason many a person has never had God to open a door where they can serve him, they've never really come to the point where they said, Lord, I'm willing. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do whatever you ask. I'll go wherever you say go. I'll be whatever you want me to be. Want me to be. Now, he said to these, you, you, you have little strength. That is, you're weak. I realize that there is a feebleness in your life as Christians in the church of Philadelphia. But let me tell you this. When feebleness is wedded to faithfulness, great and wonderful things can transpire. And oftentimes we want to say to the Lord, Lord, I just can't do that. I'm so weak. I'm so feeble. I lack so many talents. But all oh, when our feebleness is wedded and joined to the faithfulness of God and to our faithfulness to him, all oh, what great things can happen. You may have heard the name Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer lived in England many years ago. He was a very well-known and well-beloved man by the common people. They said of Hugh Latimer, he was the most honest man in England. He happened to be the bishop of the high church. He was also the chaplain of the king. And so he, a man very highly respected. Hugh Latimer worked in, in the church not only as bishop, but often as a father confessor. And I suppose that simply means he is a fellow folks felt or saying they'd come confess to. 
Well, there's a young fellow who was not very well known and not many people as far as history goes. We ought to have a record of his last name. But his name was simply called Bilney. Bilney. And everyone knew him as perhaps a no-account kind of fellow, not very promising. But Bilney trusted Christ one day after uh, reading the works of a great early preacher. And he gave his heart and life to Christ. He found the void and emptiness of his life filled. And one day he saw Father Latimer. And he had an extremely great burden for this leader of the, of the church. And so one day he went to hear Hugh Latimer in one of the services of that church. And as Hugh Latimer finished the sermon that he brought, he walked down the aisle with his flowing robes and all that uh, uh, ministerial regalia, and he passed by young Bilney. Bilney reached out and caught him by the robe, and, turned, and uh, Father uh, Latimer turned around. He said, uh, what can I do for you, son? And little Bilney said, uh, I want to make a confession to you. And the, the bishop said, sure, and he walked back around to the little confessional booth. Bilney got on the other side of the screen and he said, I, I just want to confess what a wretched man that I've been so long in my life. How my life has been so empty and void and meaningless and so full of guilt and shame because of my sin. But he said, Father, I want to tell you, I read a book the other day that introduced me to Jesus Christ. And he said, I found out that all I had to do to have a clean heart and the burden of my sin lifted was to acknowledge to him I was a sinner and ask this Savior to become mine. And I trusted him, sir, and he's filled the empty void of my life. And by that time, history says, Father Latimer's eyes were filled with tears for he too had struggled with this inner emptiness and void in his life. And all of a sudden, he just rose from the little bench in that confessional booth walked around and knelt beside little Bilney and there invited Jesus Christ in his heart. Trust him and say, here's an unknown fella, a fellow whom people counted as none account and they said, poor, feeble, weak little fella. But all oh, listen, when feebleness is wedded to the faithfulness of God and a man falls in love with Jesus Christ and knows the reality of what it means to genuinely be saved, God can use even the most feeble and the weakest of all of us. And so here, what a truth our Lord is conveying to these precious saints. These saints are under his control and he can use even the feeblest of them. Now look at verse nine. Verse nine, he reveals something else that not only are all saints under his control, but reveals that all, all sinners are under his control. Verse nine, he says this, behold, I will make them, notice, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they're Jews and are not, but do lie. In that very professed church who despised those who were true to the name of Christ and who were true in their lives and the way they live, they were true to the scripture. And these are the synagogue of Satan, despised those precious people, even as the world today hates the man or woman who becomes more and more like Christ and tries to live according to the word of God. Now notice he said of these who have lied, saying, we, oh yeah, we're, 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 of, uh, we're of, of your crowd. And yet he said, uh, I know they're lying. They're the synagogue of Satan. They don't belong to the Savior. But he said, notice what he's, uh, what, what's going to happen. I will make them come 
and bow down at your feet. Now, Joseph found that as true, did he not? Remember the vision he had of the sun and the moon and the stars, the 11 stars that bowed before him? And that very vision proved out to be where those brothers who despised Joseph, the boy who was so loved by his father, wore that coat of many colors, despising him, rejected him, threw him in the well, left him for dead. And finally one day Joseph winds up down here as the second in command in Egypt. His very brothers who had despised him, rejected him and hated him. When they come down, watch what happens. The 11 stars, those brothers of Joseph, bow down at his feet, acknowledging the wrongness of their own lives and their action. A fellow also in the Old Testament, Jephthah, you remember him? Jephthah was an illegitimate boy. And when Israel was seeking for a leader to lead their armies, uh, they rejected Jephthah on the basis that his pedigree just wasn't what it ought to be. He was an illegitimate son. And so they rejected him. And so Jephthah goes away. He forms, even so, though being rejected, forms, gathers a group of men around him, and they become, they become a mighty fighting unit. And then comes the day of distress in Israel. And Israel now comes to Jephthah and they say, will you be our leader? We know what you can do and we want you to come. You know what they're doing? Same thing as those 11 brothers, bow down. I want to tell you something. One of these days, men who have ridiculed and cursed and blasphemed God Almighty and the truth of this book are going to bow down and they're going to find that that little few, that little band, that little minority of people in the world who love God, who tried to live for him and walk according to his word, I believe we're going to have to bow and say you're right. And even so, men and women of all this earth, Paul said, every knee shall bow before the Son of God and every tongue shall confess. So the day's coming when the tables will be turned. Look at verse 10 and 11. Not only are all saints and all sinners under his control, but also every situation is under his control. Look at verse 10 and 11. And the verses simply say, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I'll also keep thee from the hour of temptation or trial, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. In other words, the language of this verse implies a period of time wherein this world will experience a great trial such as has never been on this earth before. And we know that as the period of the great tribulation when God's wrath will be poured out and it'll be, notice, on all the earth. On all of each earth, those who are left here in that dreaded time of the judgment and wrath of God, the tribulation period. And so God, even in spite of that, is in control of the situation. There'll be a remnant of folks even then who will be converted. 144,000 Jews will receive the Son of God and go out as evangelists and missionaries and proclaim the Word of God. Now, we've got some folks who claim to be a part of that 144,000. A fellow came to my house the other day Wanted to sell me some books, and I wasn't willing to buy them. He said, oh, you got anything you trade for them? I said, no, I won't even trade anything for them. He said, well, I'll just give them to you. I said, I don't want them. He is of this group that believes they're part of the 144,000. And I said to him, sir, if you're of the 144,000, which tribe do you come from? Uh, you come from uh, Jacob, or you come from uh, a Simeon, or what tribe are you? Well, that kind of threw him off. The whole story is those 144,000. God's even in control of the events that will transpire, the situations that will exist in the time of the great tribulation. And notice something else he says, that the church will be kept from that hour. 
Now, we've got a lot of folks in our world today who are trying to tell us that God's very bought bride is going to go through the tribulation. If not all of it, part of it. I do not believe that's taught in the Bible. We are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation. In other words, if the church that's bought with the precious blood of Christ would have to go through any of the judgment or the wrath of God, my friend, that's what they call double jeopardy. We'd be, we'd be suffering judgment that our Lord said he's already suffered for us. I believe, and, and somebody said, well, the church is going to have to go through part of the tribulation to get cleaned up and purged. I'm going to tell you, the tribulation period is not an earthly purgatory. It won't be a time when the church is cleaned up. Do you know the only cleansing agent known to God? The blood of the Lamb. There's no cleansing, no remitting of sin without the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. And thank God that blood's been applied to this old sinner's heart. And he's washed away her sin. He's made me acceptable in the beloved. And so he's saying to these here, not only is there going to be a time of great trial upon the earth, but he said, verse 10, I also will keep thee from the hour of trial which shall come upon all the earth. Now let me just mention in closing two other things. The second thing you'll find here that our Lord calls the people in Philadelphia is not only to behold, but he calls them to behave, to behave. He's talking about the way they live. We are, according to the scripture, to behave as the people we are, sons and daughters of the king, regenerated, born again, children of God. We are to behave as what we are, conquerors, and indeed more than conquerors. Now, in view of that, let me say that here are in view before us two things that I think we need to recognize that our Lord calls as, as related to our behavior. Two things in view. Verse 11, he reminds us of the divine initiative. Verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Now already he has said over and again, back in verse 10, I will, do you notice those words? I also will. I will keep thee from the hour of a trial. Now that very initiative that is suggested by the term I will is God's guarantee that will, uh, that God will take care of his overcoming child. The I will of God, that's the divine initiative. He's not asking anybody else to do it. He's just saying, I will do it myself. Now, notice what he says as you continue on down in verse 12. He said, him that overcometh will I make, I'll make, I'll do it, a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will, there's that divine issue again, I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Now, all of these I will. Reminds us and speaks of that divine initiative. God will do it even as he has declared. Now, two things he said I'll do. Number one, he said, I'll, I'll, make, it, I'll make you strong. He said, the overcomer, I'll make as a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, though these had but little strength as we found, God is saying, if you, though are feeble and weak and lack strength, if you'll give yourself to me, I will make of you a pillar in the temple of my God. So they had little strength, but really in reality, that's all God needs. 
He doesn't need some strong, uh, talented somebody or somebody that's willing to say, Lord, here I am. Use whatever I am and whatever I've got. I just turn it all over to you. So that little strength. But God can use even those who have a little strength. I think of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said this, my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect. The word perfect means full or complete. And God's saying, in your weakness, my strength can be made powerful, full, and complete. Again, you remember Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. And I talked to you a long while ago, a message on the strength of weakness. And oh, how we become strong when we recognize our weakness, realize we can't do it in ourselves and our own strength, and we become strong in his strength when we recognize how very, very weak we are. A pillar in the temple of my God, a pillar is a symbol of solidarity. It's solid. It is a symbol of stability. It is a symbol of strength, of endurance. Uh, I, I visited the uh, city of Corinth and also the city of Athens, Greece. And there are those magnificent temples. They have these giant uh, columns and, uh, of, uh, uh, in those temples. But if you go there today and also in Capernaum, the city of Capernaum, you'll find those old uh, temple uh, uh, columns just fallen down and broken to pieces and chipped away. But the Lord said of these, I'll make of you an enduring, everlasting t- uh, uh, a pillar in the temple of my God. You know, I think of so often in our church, and if I were to start naming names, I'd, I'd have to name everybody, I suppose. But you find those are pillars in the church. They give strength, stability. They give a solidarity to the church. Their faithfulness. They may be weak in the eyes of the world, but they're strong. And that's a strength. And not only in the temple of our God, but I like to see those temples in God's house, in the church, making us strong. Oh, God help us to be a pillar. So God will use these feeble ones here uh, to support, indeed, that aspect of the ministry of the church of getting the gospel out, those weak ones. Old Uncle Bud Robinson, the great Nazarene preacher, had a fourth grade education, spoke with a list, very timid, very bashful kind of fellow. But God used old Uncle Bud Robinson, feeble as he was, to win literally thousands of men and women of Jesus Christ. D.L. Moody, the timid kind of shoe salesman, couldn't speak correct English, yet Moody gave himself to God, and today the effect of D.L. Moody is felt even in our generation. Oh, listen, God just wants the weak. And if you feel like you're feeble and weak, if you'll just give yourself to God, he'll infuse that strength in you. He'll make of you a pillar in the temple of our God. And then watch something else. This divine initiative that he's talking about here, the I wills of God. He said, I will, I'll not only make him, but I'll mark him. I'll mark him. Notice what he said. He said, I will write upon him, verse 12, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, and I will write upon him my new name. I'll write on him the name of my God. In other words, what a distinguishing mark that is for God to put on anybody. Listen, I'll write on him. I'll put on him a mark. Hey, have you got God's mark on you? Uh, Are you recognizable in this world as having that mark? And the Lord said, I'll put my name on him. Watch uh, watch this. This very mark that that the Lord said I'm going to give, notice what he said. It identifies us with God or his greatness, his strength, his power. Not only that, but he said, I'll write on the name of, of, of the city of my God. And that speaks of government. 
We're identified with his government, with his rule. He also said, I'll write on him the name of of the new Jerusalem, or a name, literally he said, a new name, a new name. Uh, That is an identification with his glory, his greatness, his government, his glory. He identifies us with that as we are faithful to him. Now, I don't know what this new, new, new name is. The old name, what thrill, what volumes of truth are found in that old name that we find in the scripture, Jehovah. Oh, how, how unlimited is what is revealed in that name, Jehovah. And then in the New Testament, Jesus, what a name. All volumes are revealed in that name. But Jesus said, I'm gonna write on you my new name. Oh, what a glory it'll be to bear that blessed name through all the ceaseless ages of eternity, to bear his name, to bear his name, his likeness, his image. And then let me ask you to close at verse 13. At verse 13, again, you hear the same invitation we have heard over and over again, repeatedly. The Lord says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I thank the Lord saying, do you hear me? Do you understand me? Are you willing to do what I've asked you to do. Back during the days of World War II and the Battle of Britain, the Nazi, enemy, the Nazi Air Force from Hitler's regime flew over the channel over in, into England and Britain and there were just merciless bombings and killings and destruction. And those uh, German planes would come over and dropping their uh, bombs and uh, creating infernos and fires and death everywhere. Uh, but yet... Uh, there was a very courageous group of men in the Royal Air Force, the RAF. And they flew against that overwhelming number of enemy planes that had come in to destroy their country and their loved ones. They'd fly those old hurricanes and the Spitfires. Very courageous men did a, a marvelous job of defending that country. And it was, it was of these men that you remember Winston Churchill said, uh, never before in the history of human conflict have we owed so much to so few. Men gave their lives. But the story is related of a group of those pilots sitting in a mess hall at their little airstrip. And the warning came in that Nazi planes were approaching. And those men quickly got up and begun to make their way as, as they heard booming over the loudspeakers in that mess hall. Bandits at 15,000 feet at P-25 and they hurriedly were rushing their planes. And one of the squadron leaders as he's running out was heard simply to say in response to that, to that message over the loudspeaker system, message received and understood. Now I pray that somehow as God is saying, do you hear my message? Do you understand me? Do you have a loving heart? Have you seen the king? Have you made yourself available to carry the gospel of Christ to those people you know? Now you don't cross the water. That doesn't make you a missionary. To fly over in some distant country, you're missionary at heart. That's what makes a missionary. A man or woman, boy or girl who cares about the destiny of the souls of others and willing to carry the message of the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ to them. The church of Philadelphia, I set before you an open door. Return, listen to me. God sets before us an open door. But it's up to you and me whether we're going to go through it or not. The opportunity to win numbers and numbers of people to Christ. The open door to invite others to share with us in the blessing of God in this church. An open door. Have we a willing heart? 
Are we willing to weed our, uh, wed our, our, our feebleness to the faithfulness of God? God can use every one of us, every one of us, the youngest, the oldest, whoever you are. God wants a willing heart. God help us to have it. Let's pray together. As our heads are bowed, I want you to search your heart. Has God opened a door of opportunity for you? You know, he has a lot of ways of God indeed has a lot of ways of arresting the hearts, the minds of people rather. Only God can open the heart. You remember when Paul went over into Europe and won the first convert on the continent of Europe in his ministry, a woman by the name of Lydia. The scripture beautifully says that she heard the word of God and God opened her heart. You see, it is only God who can open the heart. But listen, you and I, you and I can share the gospel, make the knowledge of the Savior known to men and women. And as we give the seed and the truth of the word of God to men and women, God can use that to open hearts. I want to thank God tonight for the night he opened my heart. I thank God and thank him for all eternity that he, in his grace, opened my heart and helped me to realize my need for Jesus Christ. But I thank God for somebody who is willing to share that message of Christ with me that opened my mind. We can open the minds of people, but you'll never open their hearts. And all how we need to trust God to open hearts and to open doors as he finds us faithful to him. Let's stand together to pray, please. Heavenly Father, there are open doors of blessing, of opportunity, of service, of salvation, of ministry, of fellowship that you have opened, Lord, to many, many a heart. And perhaps tonight, Lord, you open the door in front of some, that door of fellowship, perhaps even fellowship in this church to become a part of it. To, Lord, to be faithful in this place, in this vineyard. And, Lord, maybe there's somebody here tonight that you're opening a door of opportunity out there on the job, a door to witness, a door of utterance opened as Paul spoke of in his own life. And, Father, help us to have a willing heart, a heart that's yielded to say, Oh, God, when you open the door, by your grace and your strength, I'll walk through it. Help us, to, Lord, to be like these in Philadelphia, with a spirit of revival, a vision of our blessed Lord, and a vision of the world that lies out there ready for the harvest. Help us, O oh God, to be the kind of church at return that you have only praise for. Oh, yet, Father, we feel in our heart that there's so much that, Lord, we fail to do. We fail in our consistency of witness and our personal life of evangelization, trying to get others to the Savior. Oh, God, help us to be found faithful. Now, thank you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. That's the willingness of heart. And if you've come to the point of willingness to do what God wants you to do, I guarantee you, he's probably, if not already, very soon, will open that door that he wants you to walk through. I don't know what that may be in your life. Maybe some full-time service for God. It may be some ministry in the community. It may be some ministry there. It may be fellowship in this church. And tonight, if God's opened that door and said, hey, walk through it, I urge you to do it tonight. Let's sing the stanza, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. As God's opened the door for you, walk through it, will you?